0: One of the biggest movements in contemporary Christianity today with respect to the spiritual life is the advent of accountability groups or accountability partners. Uh, The idea behind such groups is pretty simple. I want to live a better spiritual life. I want to behave more consistently with who I am in Jesus Christ. I want to mature as a Christian. So I ask someone to hold me accountable. If they see me doing something or hear me saying something that's not consistent with my goal as maturing in Christ, they're free to point it out at any time. Typically, accountability partners also agree to pray with one another and have regular Bible studies. That's pretty common. And I see nothing particularly wrong with that idea and principle. In practice, I found it maybe a little less than satisfying because there's too much room for deception. For while another person can observe my actions, they can't observe my thoughts. And so the accountability only goes as far as I want it to go. I don't speak theoretically here, but practically. When I was in seminary, I participated in an accountability group for two years. And after seminary, I led an accountability group for another two years. In the the DTS group that I was in in, up in Dallas, in my first two years in seminary, there were about eight of us. It was a good experience, I thought. We got to know each other real well. We, We shared a lot of meals together shared prayer requests together, and then they held us accountable, just like we were talking about here. And at the very end, I will never forget what happened the very last day. We were, the accountability group was going to be for two years, and then we were all kind of going to go our separate ways. And so at the very last group, the group leader, Steve Spencer, who was a professor of theology up at Dallas, he said, well, I'll just kind of listen to everybody, kind of give some parting thoughts. You know, what you thought about the group, how you enjoyed meeting everybody, and the friendships that you have established that will go on for the rest of your life. And I remember I went one of the first two people, and I said what I said. And we went all the way around the, the table. And there was about eight, eight of us, as I say. And the, the one guy kept punting. He kept saying, well, I want to go last. I want to go last. So we said, okay, we'd skip him. And finally the guy came up, and he wanted to go last. And he said, okay, I got something to say. We said, okay, what do you want to say? He said, I don't like any of you. I can't stand any of you. None of you had anything to do with me. You never invited me over to your home, which is not true. I invited him over to my house. I remember that distinctly. I had him over to my house. But, I mean, he just ripped into all of us. And I'm thinking, at that particular moment, I sat here with you for two years, and you held all that inside. I had no idea that that's what you were thinking. But, boy, he got it off of his chest. You know, sometimes people like to just get it off their chest. Actually, thankfully, I think, for Dallas Seminary and for the ministry, he dropped out of the seminary at that point and went into something else. Because that kind of a lack of transparency is not something that we particularly want, but that was my experience, at least as a participant. My experience as a group leader was quite different, thankfully. But when all is said and done, you can fool people, but you can't fool God. And as creator, God has the right to rule, He has the right to set the boundaries for what is acceptable behavior on the part of His creation. And ultimately, ultimately, no matter what kind of groups we may belong to, we're ultimately accountable to Him. At the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, at the end of our lives, we'll be held accountable for how we spent time here on this earth, not by our fellow human beings, but by the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. So ultimately, we're accountable to Him. Now watch this. If there is no God... There are no absolute boundaries for human behavior. Follow me now. If there's no God, there's no, there are no absolute boundaries for human behavior. In fact, one can reason backwards from the reality of moral standards to the existence of God. There are various forms of the moral argument for God, but it basically goes like this every law has a lawgiver. There is an absolute moral law, therefore, there is an absolute. Moral lawgiver, some might argue that universal standards for ethics and morality don't exist, but they do so against reason. No one can argue with a straight face that there's absolutely no difference from what the the, the Nazis did at Auschwitz, for example, and what Mother Teresa did at Calcutta. How could you, with a straight face, say there's no moral or ethical difference? between exterminating millions of Jews and helping hundreds of thousands of Indians. Of course there's a moral difference there. To quote C.S. Lewis on the issue, he said, the moment you say that one set of moral ideals is better than another, you are, in face, measuring them both by a standard, saying that one of them conforms more to the standard than the other one does. Of course there are moral absolutes. God has established moral standards for his people, and there are ramifications with respect to the rejection of those standards. Now, I want to stop and pause here ever so briefly. Christianity is much more than a moral system. It's much more than an ethical system. Christianity is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ gained only by grace through faith faith alone in Christ alone. Now today we're going to talk about ethics and morals, a lot about Christian behavior. But don't mistake, not for a moment, Christian behavior for coming to Christ and salvation. There's no amount of good works that you can do to earn your salvation. I want that clear up front. The, The apostle tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. No one has a right to brag. So even though today we're going to talk about the the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ramifications of the resurrection with respect to our ethical behavior, we need to understand that this is post-salvation behavior. This is not behavior that gets us saved, and it's not behavior that keeps us saved. It's behavior that we live because we love Jesus Christ, not to pay him back for anything. But Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. That's what we're talking about this morning. So, Christianity is not simply an ethical system. There are plenty of ethical systems out there. None of them are going to get you to heaven. The only way you get to heaven is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The Oxford professor, Alistair McGrath, wrote Whatever else the Christian faith might be, it is unquestionably concerned with believing that God exists and that this existence possesses significance for human identity, agency, And And again, of course, there's much, much more to Christianity than simply believing that God exists. One must come to a realization that God exists, that we're not holy enough to have a relationship with Him, that the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. We, We acknowledge that. There's no question about that at all. We know this. But McGrath's point is that the existence of God and the reality of a moral standard do possess significance for our identity in life and our behavior. 1 Corinthians 15 makes the same point, but comes at it from the perspective of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we know that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be, and that his claims were true Because of the resurrection. The resurrection and the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are the central events in all of human history. The resurrection proves that Jesus wasn't an imposter. Now, a lot of people today would like to have you believe that they're intellectual and that they're deep thinkers. And that as a result of this deep thinking... That they've come to the conclusion that Jesus was a real person. Well, thank you very much. No serious historian questions the history of, historicity of Jesus. But that Jesus was a real person, but that he was not God, that his followers just made that claim later, but that he was not God, that he was not resurrected, that he did not do miracles, and that he is certainly not the only way to the Father. But he was a good man, he was a good moral teacher. But the problem is, Jesus is the one that claimed that he was the only way to the Father. That was accurately represented by the Apostle John and and in other ways by other of the Apostles, but he's the one that stated that he's the only way to the Father. The idea that he's not the only way to the Father, but yet he's still a good moral teacher doesn't make sense. It's arguing against reason, which is what baffles me so much about the so-called intelligentsia, is that they talk about reason, but they argue against reason. Now, here's what we have as Christians. Either the resurrection happened... Either either Jesus Christ was raised just like he predicted he would be, bodily, physically, that the tomb was empty, that he was seen by the apostles, by some of his family, and by over 500 different witnesses, either that was true, or we ought to pack it up and go home. And in fact, we ought not to even reset up the room, because there'd be no ethical reason to do so. Just let other people do it. You see, if he wasn't raised from the dead, we are wasting our time here today. You've been wasting your time, some of you, for decades. Some of you for weeks or months, but others for decades you've been wasting your time if Christ wasn't raised. But if he was, then we're not wasting our time here today. In fact, if he was, we need to redouble our efforts in terms of our commitment to him, in terms of our commitment to serve him and to live a life that glorifies him. This is not a game. This is not something that we can waste time with. This is our life, and we only get one of them. Way, way back in, in my life, in my early life, I used to work with folks that were tremendous people, but they were what, what they would call New Agers, Shirley McLean, New Agers, and, and they had this idea that when they get through this life, they'll just be reincarnated as another human being. And usually, they all feel like they'll be reincarnated as something better. They all, they all felt like I was a very new soul. This was the first time I had been around because I didn't get all this concept. Well, I guarantee you, I told them, I am a new soul. This is the first and only time. That I'm going to get a shot at it, and so first, the first and only time you're going to get a shot at it. We don't get to go around several times; we get to go around once. Once the day is finished, I believe January six, two thousand thirteen. Once this day is finished, you don't get, you get to go back and grab it again. Once this opportunity to worship has been exhausted, you don't get to go back and do a do over. You know, they had do overs when we were kids. I like to, you know, you miss a free throw; I want to do that one over. No, there's no do over in life you go to the next day. And so that's why we come to in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul is concluding this great letter that we've spent quite a bit of time on. But when he's concluding the great letter in order to pull them all together with respect to their behavior, and you're gonna see that in the passage today, with respect to their behavior because they're already saved. He pulls out the resurrection because that's what separates us from everybody else. We as Christians don't worship a dead prophet. The tomb is empty. We worship a risen Savior. And there are ethical ramifications for that. There are responsibilities that I have because we worship a risen Savior. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Early in the chapter that we study today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but earlier on in this chapter, he makes the point that if Jesus wasn't raised We're all wasting our time. We studied this before Thanksgiving, so let me read these verses just to get you up to speed. In chapter 15, verse 12, Paul says, If Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, Because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ. Now, let let me pause for one moment. If you'll recall, that's back in October that we studied this. We've been over some Thanksgiving things and some Christmas things. But when we studied this, we pointed out that a false witness against God, you remember the Old Testament punishment for a false witness, false prophet? Death, yes. It's a very serious crime to be a false witness against God. Paul's saying, listen, if, if Christ wasn't raised, you ought to stone me. You get the ramifications of what he's saying if he wasn't raised and I'm saying that he was Paul's saying I'm saying that I saw him but if I'm lying under Mosaic law you ought to stone me this is serious moreover we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised your faith is worthless did you hear that It's not just something fun to come do on Sunday mornings or Wednesday night or Sunday night or have a church picnic. It's worthless if he was not raised. Now, please, there's overwhelming evidence that he was. We believe that he was there, so there is significance. But we've got to come face to face with these either or things. Listen, we either with the program here or we need to, to get away from the program. We can't just limp along between two opinions. Jesus wasn't just a good guy, he's Lord and Master. He either needs to be ignored or he needs to be worshipped. And I would proclaim to you that he deserves to be worshipped. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless or still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we among all men are to be most pitied. This morning we take up a passage that parallels verses 12 through 19. It's such an important principle that Paul picks it up again in verse 29, where we are today. And these verses read this way. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ our Lord, I may die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. There are ethical ramifications for the resurrection of Jesus. There is a certain behavior that is expected of us as Christians based upon the fact that we worship a risen Savior and not a dead prophet. If he was indeed raised from the dead and there's overwhelming evidence that he was, then we as Christians have a responsibility to behave consistently with the standard that he established. We can't just do our own thing. Now, that's popular in our culture. There's so much freedom in the United States, and, I, and I'm glad that there is. I'm, I'm thrilled that I live in a country of freedom. Now, there are less freedoms than there were even when I was a boy, but we still live in a country that is marked by freedom. But part of that freedom is not determining how I want to behave apart from what God says with respect to an ethical standard, He's the Creator. And if he created me, and he did, and he created you, then he has the right to make the rules. We don't get to set our own standards. The idea of licentious living is a falsehood. Now, since it's been a while, since we've been in 1 Corinthians, I want to remind you a little bit with respect to context. The Corinthians had a, a plethora of behavioral problems. There was very little unity in the church at Corinth. They fought over who had baptized them. They ignored blatant immorality in their church. They were fighting each other in secular courts. Some were apparently deeply involved in sexual immorality. Their marriages were in trouble. They were abusing their liberty, hurting rather than helping the less mature in the church. They were selfish and they were abusing the Lord's table and then they had a false system of hierarchy with respect to the spiritual gifts. If you did this particular spiritual gift, you must be a a better Christian than someone who had been given another spiritual gift. And all that, all that needed to change. And so Paul, for the first 14 chapters in, in 1 Corinthians, is exhorting them to change. You've got to stop this. It's killing your spiritual life. And if I was to paraphrase, I'd say this. You only go around once. You only get one shot at this. And then you will be held accountable not by me or not by your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your uncle or your aunt. You'll be held accountable in eternity by God himself. So this is serious business. I once knew a lady named Ethel Locke. Ethel was right around 105 when she passed away. I knew her from the time she was 100 to 105. I used to visit her in her nursing home. And Ethel was a fine Christian lady. But she was frustrated by the fact that she couldn't get to church anymore. She really uh, had very few people that visit her because most of the people that she knew had been dead a long, long time. She survived her husband by like 40 years. But she said, Bruce, sometimes I feel like a frog on a lily pad watching the world go by. In other words, I'm not participating anymore. Well, we ought never be like a frog on a lily pad watching the world go by. We're part of the game. We're part of the play. We're not spectators. We're part of the action, and we need to be serious about this. But you see from the roster of things that were problematic in the church at Corinth that they were not exactly the poster child church for morality in the ancient world. In fact, they were the church that gave Paul more problems than any other church that he ministered to. We could also probably make the assertion that they might have given him more problems than all of the other churches combined. If we go by his letters, and his letters were usually responses to problems. Oh, there were problems in Philippi. He had two women that were fighting with each other. But that's nothing like what was going on in Corinth. There were problems in Ephesus. They were having problems with the Gentile-Jew relationship once they had first come to Christ. But it's nothing like what was going on in Corinth. They gave Paul such a hard time. Yet he loved them. And God loves them, which is amazing. Because you would think from a creator standpoint, if this creation was not loving him in return, even though he had loved them, that he'd have nothing to do with them. But that's not how it works with God. Because God is a merciful God, and he wants to restore the relationship. And if he's got to discipline us to do it, he'll do that, just like we do with our children, to make sure that they don't start doing what they ought not to to do. This is amazing. As this paragraph opens, beginning in verse 29. Paul, again, is going to continue his argument on the importance of the resurrection and its significant for Christian behavior with, frankly, one of the most confusing verses in the New Testament. Sorry to have to do that to you right after the New Year, but this is, arguably, one of the most confusing verses in the New Testament in verse 29. Read it with me again. Otherwise, and remember, he's talking about what, what happens if there's no resurrection. He says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized... For the dead, if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, in this paragraph, the paragraph that we study today, Paul's going to have two examples of why the resurrection is important and significant with respect to behavior. The first example is here in verse 29. The second example will come in the next three verses. From the first century all the way up until now, New Testament scholars have debated the meaning of verse 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What in the world is going on with respect to this concept of baptism for the dead? What exactly is it? Is it significant? And if it's significant, why is it not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament? If it's significant, if it's a legitimate practice, why are we never told how to practice it? Why are we never told why we practice it? Can someone, and here's the question, can someone actually influence the eternal destiny of someone else who has already died? That's the question here. We know from other scripture that each person determines his or her own spiritual destiny. I can't believe for you. You can't place your faith in Christ for me. We can't do it for our children. Nobody else can do it for us. We have to do it ourselves. We all determine our own eternal destiny, with the only exception being those who have no opportunity to believe, the the infants and those who are mentally handicapped and so forth. But otherwise, we all determine our own spiritual destiny. So we know that from other scriptures. We can't decide for someone else. Jesus himself made that clear. So this... Cannot be speaking of a baptism that's done on behalf of someone else after they die. Now I, having said that, there are people that practice this. In fact, the, the Mormon faith, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day saints, practices baptism for the dead, believing that they can actually influence the eternal destiny of someone that's already passed on. But I have to say that that particular teaching ignores sound, clear, biblical revelation. So Christians reject that concept. As Christians, we would reject that. The view that the majority of the early church fathers had with respect to this verse, and I told you there's been discussion all the way from first century till now about what this verse means, but the view of the early church fathers, the ancient church fathers, with the, the, the dead in view here, is not a reference to those who had died physically, but a reference to those who are dead spiritually. In other words, all of us at one time or another. And so, therefore, this would be a reference to ordinary Christian water baptism. That was the view of the ancients, and that's possible, but I have to tell you that stretches the Greek grammar just a bit. Because the Greek grammar does have a preposition in there, huper, with a genitive, which means as a substitute for or on behalf of. So this doesn't look like it's something that one does for themselves. So most, most all in modern scholarship reject the ancient view. Just because something is ancient doesn't make it correct. I I believe they had a faulty uh, view there. Modern New Testament scholarship holds, generally holds, that this baptism on behalf of the dead was a pagan practice that had been incorporated by just a minority into the church at Corinth and was being practiced in worship there. It would make sense in, this, in the fact that many things that the pagans did had been incorporated into Christian worship in Corinth. That's one of the things Paul has been arguing against for almost the whole letter. So the, modern, the more modern New Testament view is that this baptism on behalf of the dead was something that a few people in Corinth were practicing. It was not a legitimate practice, it's something that a few people are practicing. And Paul is just saying, oh, by the way, if there's no resurrection, if, there's, if Jesus hadn't been raised and there's no resurrection from the dead, why are you even bothering with this pagan practice? Now, that actually fits the context a bit better. But the point is not so much exactly what this baptism for the dead is, and I, but other than to tell you nobody can influence the eternal destiny of someone else after they've passed away. So if you're waiting to give the gospel to somebody... Give it to them now. Don't wait. We have to reject the idea that the baptism of the dead is something that can be done later. I would hold that it's something that they were doing as a pagan ritual. when Paul's saying, if Christ wasn't raised, why are you wasting your time? And that's what the behavioral thing. Why are you wasting your time? Then he moves on to himself, an autobiographical illustration in verses 30 through 32. Why are we also in danger every hour? What Paul's saying is that if Christ hasn't been raised, what am I doing out here on the mission field? Why am I risking my life? Now, this is not just theoretical for the apostle Paul. He risked his life. We'll see that actually in the next book that we study, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He outlines some of the things that he went through. In the book of Acts, we see some of the dangers that Paul faced. Paul was actually stoned one time, left for dead. But he wasn't dead. The Lord revived him. I mean, he was ridiculed everywhere he went. You know, that, that aggravates me. I, I don't know if you know that about me. It probably aggravates you too if people ridicule you. I can handle a lot of stuff, but ridicule, oh, that really tests my sanctification. Paul was ridiculed everywhere he went. His theology was questioned everywhere he went. Paul was a rising star in Judaism of his day. Did you know that? He was the rising star. He was a scholar, scholar in Judaism. But yet, people would say, you know, that, that guy Paul, the other Judaizers, that after his conversion, that guy Paul, smart guy. I went to seminary with him there in Jerusalem. We knew each other back then. Don't know what happened to him, but boy, he is really off the reservation now when it comes to theology. All this salvation by grace through faith thing, no way. Everywhere he went, he would go and pour his heart out to people. And then people would come behind him and, and do everything they could to damage his character and his integrity. In for an apostle, whether you're an apostle, or whether you're a pastor, or whether whether you occupy any position in the body of Christ, that's the last thing you need is your integrity damaged. And that's what they did to Paul all day long. This is not theoretical for him. So when he says, why are we in danger every hour? It's rhetorical. If Christ hasn't been raised, then why am I putting myself in this dangerous situation all the time? When he says I die daily in verse 31, that means that's an actual literal death that is potential for him to die everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, I've been to some places that were, were interesting from a, from a uh, cultural standpoint where we had to have bodyguards to go to this place. We've been some place we probably should have had bodyguards that we didn't because I didn't need a bodyguard because Jesus is my bodyguard. But I do that maybe two to four weeks a year. This was Paul all the time. It's amazing. So he's saying if Christ wasn't raised, if this is all just a game, then what am I doing here? In fact, what he doesn't say, oh, I wish he would have, was why am I putting up with you, <laughs> you know, if, if Christ hasn't been raised? Why am I putting up with all your nonsense? Why am, I, why am I continuing to try to turn you back to the Lord if there is no resurrected Jesus? This is no game for the apostle Paul. It should be no game for us. Paul had been saved by grace through faith, and he was thankful for it. So Paul served out of love. That's why I serve today. I don't serve to pay Jesus Christ back for what he did for me. I could never begin. It would be an insult to him if for one moment my motivation was to pay him back for my salvation. I serve him because I love him. I serve him because I'm thankful. I serve him because I've called, because I've been called. I want want to be obedient. And all of us are more or less obedient, depending on the particular day. We all would like to be 100% obedient, but we're not. Me included. You included, too. But we serve because we love him. And that's why Paul served. But he wasn't serving against reason. It would have been against reason for him not to serve. It would have been ridiculous for him not to follow Jesus Christ and committed discipleship if Jesus was resurrected. you see why it all comes back to that? It all comes back to the fact that a resurrected Jesus means there's an ethical standard for us. And once again, please, in case you weren't listening before, I'm not talking about to get to heaven. I'm talking about as believers, as people who are already saved. There's no ethical standard that will get you saved. But Paul is talking about people, he's talking to people that are already saved. Because Christ has been raised, we know that we're going to be raised. If that's not true, Paul's wasting his time. But since we know we will be raised, then we have to make the proper use of our time. Not like he says in verse 32, "If, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus... Now, again, modern scholarship can't find that. I can't find it in, in the book of Acts when we go through Paul's journeys in Acts. Most believe, although there's no proof of it, most believe that Paul never actually was thrown into the arena with wild beasts, and the primary reason, with literal wild beasts, the primary reason they hold that is because Paul was a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens would not have had to endure that kind of punishment. Paul could have appealed to Caesar, which he did, and so he, he would have been immune from that. He could have been beheaded like he was, but he wouldn't have been thrown to the beast. There are are references in ancient literature to wild beasts being people. People who were antagonistic toward another individual. That's what most in modern scholarship feel like is happening here. The wild beasts are just people that want to rip Paul to pieces. But he's saying, if Christ wasn't raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we will die. If he hasn't been raised, then he might as well pursue sensual pleasure instead of godly behavior paul at the end of verse 32 is quoting isaiah chapter 22 verse 5 and also ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 16 in a bit of a modified form to make his point but if there's no resurrected christ there are no boundaries on our behavior my friends because there's no god frankly there is no god if there's no resurrected christ you, you might can try to make a, an argument for a theistic God that's not a Christian God, but I really think the, the more you try to do that, the harder time you're going to have doing it. And we may as well do whatever it is we want to do. Somebody gives us a hard time on the road instead of just waving at them and letting them on by. Run them off the road. The clerk at the, at the grocery store doesn't treat you the way that you feel like she or he should treat you. They may just, just curse them out because that's what you do. There's nobody's feelings but your own, but how silly that is. Even people who are atheists don't don't live that way. They might theoretically talk that way. Even atheists are very courteous people. Deep down, they know there's a moral standard that they'll be held accountable for. Unfortunately, in their atheism, they're in big trouble. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, he was a fraud. And there are no ethical responsibilities for any of us. And we might as well indulge with unrestricted sensual appetite. But he was raised, so we don't have the the right to do so. And then finally, he gets to the Corinthians specifically. First, he gave an illustration from this baptism of the dead, why there is significance in behavior for the resurrection. The second illustration is from his own life and his own sufferings. And now he goes back to the Corinthians. And remember, this is what he's doing in chapter 15. This is really a central passage. And again, it's kind of too bad that we're having to do this starting almost from scratch again from late October. But what he's doing now is he's summarizing a lot of the book when he says in verses 33 and 34, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, I'll talk about the context of that in a moment. You've heard that phrase before. Verse 34, be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. Now, this is to the Corinthians, but it could be to all of us. Stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The phrase, bad company corrupts good morals, was very likely a quotation from an ancient comedy by a fellow named Menander. We can't determine with certainty that that's where Paul received it from, but it is, he is quoting something here. Whatever its origin, it must have been known to the Corinthians, fairly well known to them. And... I know I've used this phrase. You probably used it too with your kids when they're going out. People that you prefer them not to hang around with. But it's used in various ways today. But the phrase "bad company," as it is used in verse in First Corinthians 15:32, is in, is inclusive of those who deny the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. That's the bad company there. So Paul's saying, "Don't hang around these people that deny the resurrection of Jesus. That's going to corrupt your." Morals. So the answer to the Corinthian problem was right thinking. Right thinking, right perspective. They had to have the correct perspective on the resurrection. They had been in a spiritual stupor for so long that their behavior was characterized by sinning. Make no mistake, we all sin. This is not confession time, but we, we all sin. In fact, the Apostle John says in his first letter, if you say you don't sin, you're lying, and you're sinning right then. The only person I ever had that came into our church that he didn't sin was drunk at the time that he told me he had never sinned, and it just interrupted our Sunday night Bible study. (laughs) Oh, I've never sinned. (laughs) Well, how can you give somebody the gospel? Don't try to give the gospel to a drunk. Wait till they're sober. It doesn't do any good. But other than him, I've never run into anybody that says that they had never sinned. We can't deny it. We can't deny the fact that we sin. But here's what Paul's saying. Some Christian lives, and we're talking about Christians here, some Christian lives are characterized by sinning. You see the subtle difference? All of us sin, but some of our lives are characterized by sin. Some people sin, but their life is characterized by righteousness. And the overall view of their life, the, the bird's eye view of their life, their life is one of moving from a position of spiritual immaturity to one of spiritual maturity. Not sinlessness, but on the right track, that 's not what Paul's talking about here. He 's talking to people whose lives was characterized by sinning, and it was ruining their testimony, as we've seen in previous chapters of First Corinthians. And so what Paul is saying as we close today, he 's saying, "Snap out of it! You're in this spiritual stupor. Snap out of it, Wake up. Get your act together." That 's the message for the Corinthians, because their behavior was shameful. And if that's the message for the Corinthians, let this passage speak to each one of us. Are our lives characterized by sinning? If they are, I'm not saying do we sin, all of us do, but are our lives characterized by sinning like the Corinthians were? Then Paul would have the same message for us, snap out of it, wake up, get your act together. Jesus Christ was resurrected, so therefore there's an ethical behavior that's expected of you if Christ was raised from the dead and there's ample evidence that shows that he was, there's irrefutable evidence, may I say it that way, that shows that he was, then we as Christians have a responsibility to behave consistently with the standard that he has established.